Hey friends, welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. We hope you enjoy what you're listening to, and may you find peace and grace. Sometimes when I think about what we do here at church, that we come together once a week together around the Bible and read from a book written thousands of years ago, it feels a little nuts. Like I don't read any other book from that long ago and try to glean meaning from them. Yet here we gather every week together. And many of us read this collection of stories and letters every day. Why? Why do we do this? What compels us to gather around God's word? Uh, John uh, 5:39 says that you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These very scriptures are the ones that testify about me, Jesus says. And so we go to the Bible because these stories point to Jesus, and most of us here have experienced that Jesus is life. Many of us have sought life and meaning elsewhere, and we've found nothing quite like Jesus because you were created to be filled with Jesus. And you know this much is true, so you continue seeking truth. That's how it is for me. (laughs) So throughout Mark's account of the gospel, gospel means good news or good announcement, Mark uses language that seems to express Jesus' frustration at his disciples or kind of his belief in how slow they are or how slow they seem to understand what's going on. And he says to them things like, you are so dull. (laughs) Not the most kind, (laughs) kind words. He seems frustrated when he asks, like, do you still not understand? And today's reading, actually, the the reading that we'll get into in just a minute here, it has this other aspect of the disciples and teachers of the law where Jesus uh, seems irritated by how slow they are on the uptake, like how slow they are to get it. But after thinking about this for a bit of time, I kind of began to wonder if Mark wrote it out like this very purposefully, like he had an agenda to write the disciples into the stories of Jesus in this way. Like maybe Mark had an angle he was attempting to get to for his audience. Mark wrote this gospel for a non-Jewish audience. And I'm sure he had specific people in mind when he wrote everything down. He probably was thinking about his cousin's friend, Romulan, (laughs) made up name of course, And maybe he was thinking about that Greek family in one of Paul's house churches, or maybe those people he had in mind while writing this gospel were a little slow on the uptake as well. Maybe they were in a state of, I believe because I keep showing up, right? Maybe they were in a place of, I believe because nothing else in this world makes sense. I believe because something deep within me resonates with something deeper in this world. And there's something I can't deny, but in my belief, help my unbelief. Help me when my faith feels like it's being held and pieced together with a string. I believe, help me with my unbelief. I think Mark wrote about the disciples being so dull Because Mark knew a lot of people, maybe even himself, that was a little slow on the uptake and needed a little more grace and patience than maybe some other believers did. 
I bet reading about the disciples in this light brought a little bit of relief for others. I know it does for me. So why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We'll be in verses 14 to 29 this morning. This is right after the transfiguration. So Jesus has just come down from the hillside or the mountainside. And he is with his like three best friends, Peter, uh, James, and John. And it says in verse 14, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It often throws him into a fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. At Bible study on Thursday, uh, what we do every Thursday is we read through the passage, whatever passage we're studying, we read through it three times. And you know, every time at Bible study, we, we do the passage for the week ahead. So we study the scripture on Thursday that we'll study together on Sundays. And uh, we read the passage through three times with like three different translations of the text. But this last time on Thursday, Jason asked us to do something different. He asked about all the characters in the story and he wanted us to list them out. So we started listing out the characters. You got Jesus, you got the boy, the father, scribes, or the teachers of the law. Um, You have the disciples who were there in the story, but then you also have the disciples who show up later on, or you know, later in the story, the ones that came up with Jesus uh, down from the mountain. You have the crowd there, um, but then you have a later crowd that shows up. You have the evil spirit. And Jason asked each of us to choose one character and spend a few minutes reading through the text from that character's perspective. And then we shared about what we saw differently than before. It was a super powerful experience hearing from each person 
who took each character and walked us through the text by that character's perspective. It was pretty incredible. But I felt drawn to the unmentioned mother's perspective because I'm sure she was there. Women were rarely named in antiquity because their testimony was considered unreliable. But I, man, I bet that mom was there pleading alongside her husband for her son. I'm sure she wished the evil tormented her instead of him, as most mothers do. When your child is sick or tortured by illness and there's nothing you could do for your child, you wish you could bear it instead of them. I think we're meant to see these stories and remember the real humans within them. We're meant to feel what they felt because it's often what we've felt. Many of you know what it's like to be tortured by illness, mental or physical. Maybe you wouldn't say it's an evil spirit, but it certainly has felt like something outside of your control. Man, the suffering person in our midst is real. This story begins with Jesus, Peter, James, and John coming down from a mountain after experiencing this supernatural event, something unexplainable and holy and unforgettable. And they come down the mountain and into an argument between the other disciples and some of the teachers of the law. Now, the teachers of the law are those who are experts in God's stuff. You know, like they've passed all the right tests, they know all the right answers, and could debate theology with their big words all day long. They were the experts. They were the ones you went to for answers. And I'm guessing the disciples would look at these teachers for those answers. If you think about it, their rabbi was gone, up some mountain. They didn't know when their rabbi would come back. Their rabbi wasn't there to help them. But if you look back, if you remember from a few weeks, months ago, probably, when we looked at Mark 6, why don't you turn with me to Mark 6. Uh, Verse 6, it says, "Um, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. And then verse 12 says, They went out. And preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So the disciples have been removing sickness and darkness all over the place. This shouldn't be that hard. But I wonder if these disciples began to revert back to their old ways of thinking when Jesus wasn't around and they weren't near and they were near the religious experts. Like if it, they just went back to their old ways. This is actually, this is a story that mirrors the story of Moses um, and the Israelites who came out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt through the Exodus. And they've passed through the Red Sea. Like they've experienced all these miracles, miracle after miracle, extreme event after extreme event. And they get to the bottom of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up there to meet with God. And when Moses comes down, they have, because they don't have their leader with them any longer, they've lost sight of what God has done all along. They are now looking at the past, the past experts, the past ways of doing things to make sense of how things are today. And this is what we see in this passage. Jesus wasn't around. 
but they were near the religious experts, the people they would go to for all the answers before they ever met Jesus. So I want you to think of your first job. Like, well, what was your first job? I mean, everybody has a first job. Like the first one that you got, not babysitting or something, the first one that you got a paycheck for and they took taxes out. (laughs) I worked in a snack bar at our local pool. I ate a lot of ice cream sandwiches and I drank a lot of Sprite. (laughs) But I would show up after it was opened and I would leave before we closed. And I was always with another more capable employee until they gave me a key and hours to be there early and stay late by myself and count the money by myself and figure out the receipts by myself. And I had that kind of responsibility. They gave me the authority to do those things. Now you might be the best employee ever, but when given that kind of responsibility and authority, you might find yourself a little unsure just because you're the one in charge. Now, imagine if another boss shows up, someone who knows how to do the job because they wrote the handbook, but hasn't actually ever worked behind the counter. You would refer to their expertise. You would expect them to take charge, right? Like, yet, so you would want them to do that. You would want them to take uh, that level of authority from you and you could then revert back to being just the normal employee because the boss is there, right? Yet they might only know the answers to the questions, but they don't know how to interact with customers. They don't know how to dip the frozen banana into the chocolate with the right technique because they may have written about it, but they've never actually done it. And to save face and not look naive, they might put more responsibility on you. But you don't want to mess up because you assume they're perfect at everything because they're the boss. So I know this is maybe grasping at straws here, but I I think the disciples felt out of their element around these teachers of the law because their rabbi wasn't around to give them the confidence they forgot they already had. And the teachers of the law knew all the answers but they didn't know who the answers pointed to. They knew about the people God loved. They just didn't know the people God loved. So they argued. They created a pissing contest while someone suffered in their midst. Religious people, and if you look around the room, that's most of us, We are really good at arguing over theological constructs and issues and what we think God would do in a situation like this, or if God approves of this person or that behavior, while there is a human being standing nearby suffering. We are really good at making a case and arguing our theological side about the suffering person while they continue to be tortured. And oftentimes, we keep arguing while they painfully wait for a conclusion that never comes, but we feel better for the argument. (laughs) A pissing contest between these Christians and those Christians, us and them, while the suffering continue to suffer. 
The disciples felt ill-equipped to help the suffering boy, possibly because they felt intimidated to perform while the experts watched. They weren't relying on God's strength and belief in who God had called them. They weren't remembering Jesus had already commissioned them to cast out demons, had already given them that authority. They forgot what was true about them because the experts made them question their identity. When our identity is off, when we forget who Jesus has called us as, we lose focus on those who suffer and we put our focus on ourselves and how other people see us. We become independent and believe we can fix things on our own instead of being dependent on God. The disciples forgot who they could depend on. And the experts depended on their own wisdom where they needed to save their fragile egos. So they made the suffering boy into a theological word problem to solve. I think Jesus was so frustrated and irritated because he saw the suffering not as a theological word problem, but as someone who was absolutely and overwhelmingly loved by God and wasn't created by God for an agonized existence. Jesus comes between the doubting disciples and the fragile teachers to encounter, to encounter a brokenhearted, desperate, and determined father willing to do anything anything for his son. So Jesus asks him, what's your son's name? Danny. His name is Daniel, but we call him Danny. How long has Danny been suffering like this? Jesus asks. Since he was a young boy, he wasn't always like this. It wasn't always this hard. Danny had a future of good things. He had so much joy in his life, but he's in so much pain that my son wishes he were dead. He's being tortured by something that's against God. It's overtaken him, but I know Danny's still there. Please, I've heard rumors about you, Jesus. I've heard you work for God, that God's power flows through you. So please take pity on us. And help us if you can. If I can, anything is possible for the one who believes, Jesus said. And this desperate father sobs out a piercing prayer, crying, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. This is the prayer of raw honesty. This gut-wrenching prayer of desperation that came from the Father's end of himself. The kind of prayer that hopes for change but girds itself for unmet expectation. The kind of prayer that allows for nuance and unknowns and sadness in the midst of it all. The kind of prayer that says, not my will but yours be done. The kind of prayer of complete abandon, release and surrender in the most gritty way. I believe something deep within me won't let me not believe no matter how much I want to throw my hands up in the air and walk away and leave it all behind. I freaking can't because I believe. But Lord Almighty, help me overcome my unbelief because I'm not sure how much longer I can hold on. The thing with Jesus 
is that it's not about how hard you can hold on. Even if you let go, Jesus is still holding on to you. There's nowhere you can go that takes you away from God's loving presence. But the honesty of prayer like this allows for hope to dig in. It is hard to look at suffering and still believe in a good God. And that's okay. It's okay to wonder if God is good when we see the pain and hurt in the world. It's appropriate to question God's plans or if God cares when you encounter painful stories, when you experience your own form of torture, when you wonder if things will ever change. These feelings are not born out of unbelief or a lack of faith. They come from lived experiences. They come from desperation and brokenhearted places. But honest prayers, like this one of the Father, they reorient ourselves back to God. In a prayer of desperation, in the grittiness and determination of, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief because of what I see and have experienced, we are reoriented back to God. We begin to see the pain and suffering around us, and instead of treating it like a theological word problem we need to solve, we begin to listen to stories. We hear the pain and allow space for the pain to live without throwing an answer at it. We lean into God and we recognize we're not alone in helping those who suffer. There are situations too hard for you to handle on your own and you were not designed to handle on your own. So you'll begin to see we don't and we can't fix anything on our own, but God moves through us, working through us as we're dependent on God for compassion, care, and supernatural strength. We bear the peace of Christ, the hope of the cross, the love of the Father into a suffering world, and we cry alongside those who are closest to that pain, saying, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Amen.